Dix. Nio. Åtta. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Sterre. Five. Two. One. Welcome, listeners, to this special bonus edition of the ESA Explorers podcast. My name is Annelies Van Dam, and in these episodes, we'll be talking about science on the International Space Station. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the first European astronaut making his way up to the ISS, starting 20 years of more and more science experiments in low Earth orbit. We want to know more about how science got started, what it takes to get an experiment up on the ISS, and what's in store for the future. In the previous two episodes, we've discussed the past and the presence of science on the International Space Station, so what's left to talk about now is the future. Today we'll discuss the future of the International Space Station, and also how it could possibly help us get to Mars. If you've listened to our previous two episodes, you will already know our guests a little bit, because today we are continuing our conversation with Andreas, Kirsten, and Nicole. But in case we do have any brand new listeners, can you please introduce yourselves one more time? Okay. Uh, I'm Andreas Schön. I'm leading the research and payload group in the Directorate of Human Spaceflight and Robotic Exploration in ESA. I'm Kirsten McDonald, and I'm leading the team of ESA ISS Utilization Research and Planning. My name is Nicole Buckley, and I'm the SciSpace team leader. And that means that I'm responsible for the science content of the European Space Agency Exploration Program. Okay, thank you, and a warm welcome back to all three of you. I want to start this episode about the future by asking one more question about the past. Given all the science that's been going on on the ISS in the past 20 years, um, are there any experiments that are your favorites or that have really benefited people on Earth? Well, this is asking us to choose our favorite child, I think, uh, you know, and, and, and so that's a difficult to choose uh, favorites. And uh, so I think that I will offer that to my colleagues who've been around. I know that as uh, somebody who's new to that there are a couple that I've noticed, but what, what would you folks suggest? No, no actually, I, I, can, I can say it because I just talked to a friend the other day. At least from the last years, the, 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 the ASIM experiment where we literally observe thunderstorms from space is, is one of my favorites because it gives you a different view, right? As, as kids, we were standing there, we were seeing the lightning, and then we were counting 21, 22, 23, and to see how far away the, the, the thunderstorm is. But you, you, on Earth, you, you hear the noise and you see the lightning, and because, of course, you look on individual range, but from space, you see what really happens at this point in time of the lightning, that you get a big a gamma and X-ray uh, coming out of the lightning and stuff like that. So you, so literally, you, when, when you see this, when you see the visualization of these experiment results, what happens in a, 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 a break of a second, right? And, and you see this overlay of the different visual X-ray, gamma, then suddenly it dawns to you, heck, that must have an enormous energy, which is literally realized in in, in this uh, in less than a second. So, and it gives you it gives you an, an understanding what happens in nature. That is an enormous energy which which is uh, transferred in a, in a very very short period of time, and in an event which we all familiar because we we know thunderstorm and lightnings on the ground, but we have never seen it from the top. We have never seen. What, what, what happens completely in that moment. And that's really impressive to me. And it really shows to you, literally there is a phenomena we all know 
still has a component we don't know and we don't know and don't properly understand. At least most of the people do not understand it because they have never seen it that way. And that's very impressive to me. So can you quickly summarize uh, how the experiment works? In a, in a very simplified explanation, you have a set of cameras on board which, which observe a, a, a thunderstorm, a lightning in a, in a visual a frequency band with a, with, in an X-ray band and in a gamma ray band. So you can see different phenomena at the same point in time. You see the lightning, the, the, the effect which is in a visual bandwidth, you see the, 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 the X-ray strike which comes out of it, and you see also the gamma strike which comes out of it. And you can even measure the time resolution between the different phenomena. And you see when you look at the time resolution that they actually do not happen at the same point in time. It's a sequence of events which happens. And then you understand that 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 a lightning is a completely other effect than we see from the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. And we could have never seen that from the ground, from the Earth itself. No, you can't see it from the ground because you you can see the lightning, but but the gamma and the the X-ray go up to space. You can only above. see it from 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 above. Yeah. And I think we actually on our website have some great uh, visualizations of this experiment. So yeah. maybe we can post a link or something. Uh, Kirsten, do you have a, a favorite or maybe just an example of something that would be cool? Yeah, I, I like there. There are two experiments called uh, grip and grasp that I find quite interesting because um, we are basically <laughs> putting a virtual reality headset on the crew member and asking them to perform some exercises. Um, and we it's all about the the feedback loop that we have um, with our peripheral nervous system which is throughout our body and then you know sending signals to our central nervous system and so um normally um we 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 have you know you you start from a very young age as, as a baby reaching out and, and grasping an object and understanding how far away it is. And, and a little baby can look at a picture of a, an apple and think that it's, it's three-dimensional even, you know. <laughs> so we, we evolve to, to understand how much force it takes to actually grab an object um, and move it around. And in space with weightlessness, um, you have those effects where it's, it doesn't require quite the same amount of force or, and, and to lift things and move them back down again. You're almost retraining your brain to do that type of thing. And so we're, when you have an astronaut that's flying to space that has, um, you know, healthy, uh, no, no kind of disease uh, or anything, and, and you take away, you take away gravity and they have to, the brain has to essentially learn this new process again you can actually study how that new process is learned in the brain and then compare it to the loss of that peripheral nervous system signal in the cases where the people are have have an impairment of that so in like parkinson's disease multiple sclerosis huntington's disease als we're talking millions of people on earth that that have that uh, some of those diseases and so to understand how the brain and the body talk to each other uh, and the fact that you, you know, you're taking away all the other elements and and being able to compare the healthy person. So it, it's it's less linked to, to diet and exercise and lifestyle and everything. You can just see by taking out gravity alone, what the brain uses to train for that, um, to understand the, the, um, the new process and then look at that delta and then compare it to to start to understand how the brain works and 
and I, I think that's it's really fascinating. And the crew, since they have to be free floating <laughs> when we don't want them to bump into anything and they're wearing these virtual reality headset, we end up kind of tethering them in Columbus and they're basically floating in the middle of Columbus when they perform this experiment and and then they visualize things and with a, a device in their hands they're they're expected to react and so it it's really interesting to to watch the crew members actually perform it i think they really enjoy doing it themselves and i'm really curious to see uh, we've got um, three people who've done it fully so far two more people performing it on orbit at the moment uh, and when we have the full data set i'd be really interesting to really interested to see what actually comes out of it yeah, that's another uh, example of something that sounds so simple to us on Earth, you know, grabbing a pencil, grabbing a, a cup that just can be broken down in, into such complex science, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just the fact that you, you readapt, you know, and, and I remember uh, an astronaut talking to me about um, when he had returned to Earth and uh, on the first few days he was holding something and then just dropped it to go do something else and heard it shatter on the floor, you know, just forgetting floating away slowly. I used to be able to just let go and come back and it would be there again, or maybe it would move a little bit with some airflow, but <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, we have some really amazing facilities on orbit. Uh, another one is uh, an electromagnetic levitator uh, where if you imagine, um, when we want to test melting and cooling and reheating of metals on Earth, you're always um, impacted by the fact that that metal is sitting on something. <laughs> you can make it as small as possible, like tiny tongs or prongs or something, but in the end, or, or, or it's just sitting on the surface itself, but in the end, you can't take away the fact that it is interacting with this external component. So uh, with this experiment, uh, we're in microgravity and with the fact that you have this electromagnetic levitator, it can keep it in one spot and you can super, you can heat it to extremely high temperatures and see how this metal behaves and without the, the influence of anything else that's actually holding it in place. So that's another one that's that's really, really fascinating. And we continue to do uh, amazing research uh, ever since it flew on, on ATV-5. Uh, we've had two full batches where we've done multiple runs on it. And we're in the, we're about, we're in the middle actually of, um, we've just started our first, our third batch, excuse me. And a fourth batch is on the way because it, it's uh, really yielding some very interesting results. That's very cool. Yeah. So what's in store for the future? What will the next 20 years look like in terms of science on the ISS? Andreas has talked about the evolution of, of platforms and of our knowledge and know-how in space. And I think that we're going to look back and we're going to realize at some point how the International Space Station, while sometimes scientists, they'll complain it's not as good as their lab on Earth and it has all these constraints and all these challenges, but they're going to recognize just how remarkable it was at this early stage to have this permanent platform in space for humans for so long and to have the opportunity for these long-range experiments and even follow-up experiments and going to the next step and also i think that um something that i think that just i've noticed since working here at the european space agency is all the different nationalities and all the different people working together and because it's not just engineers and scientists but we have to work with 
financial with people. We have to work with the IT. We work with communications. So you have all these different professions and different nationalities all working together. And in a lot of ways, that's a microcosm of the International Space Station, where you have all these different countries and nationalities and backgrounds and train and, and all working together. So I think we're going to look back on this and we're going to see how maybe it was a little bit of a golden age for science that hopefully we'll see again, but we're not, I don't think going to see soon. And I think that we'll, what we have learned about working together and uh, not only the science, the technology, but just working together, I think will be a, a model going forward. Do you say golden age because we're not doing it anymore? Or do you say golden age because we've made so many discoveries that the pace is not going to go as fast? I think it's a little bit of both that, that uh, what we have learned, because I think that when we talk about going to Mars or going to the moon, I think that initially it'll be a little bit like the first few years of the International Space Station, where it was just sort of one module. It took a while to actually get it up and running as a science platform. I think that when we start looking at uh, further exploration, we're talking about rovers that might have a few instruments on them. And even to get to a point where we have, uh, frankly, a, a larger settlement, that we have the luxury of having a lab. This is because we already know that the operations and just keeping people alive, uh, that's a challenge. So when you start adding all this extra, that, that can be really demanding. So this is why I think that we'll look back and think the International Space Station was, was a very remarkable step in the evolution of space exploration and also the use of space for Earth. And people will say it was so simple back then <laughs> when we were just going around the earth. Yeah, but maybe we, maybe in, in 50 or 100 years, like people will look at this and, and say, how could they do this? They must have been insane. It's like we now look at the early race cars from the 1920s, right? They were going over 200 kilometers an hour with a car, which today would most likely not pass any technical inspection, right? And we say, they must have been insane. They did so many flights. Today with a heavy lifter, we do this with five flights or whatever, right? It's always when you look backwards at, at the technology. But what I found remarkable, and I guess a lot of people should maybe give it, give it, a, give it a, a 10 second thought. I mean, ISS is remarkable also from one perspective. It is a project which has literally survived all political waves. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, really to understand it, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, if somebody digs a little bit in the history, people will understand there was also a political agenda with ISS, very clearly. But actually the agenda was right. And she has proved being right because the project runs until today. And I mean, if you, for a few years in that business and you go to Houston or you go to Star City or you go to Tsukuba, you meet the people and there is, there is, one understanding, right? It's it's literally uh, 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 like in these old rock songs, the show must go on. Okay, the, the people just working for that, they they living that, and it's not a question of of a national flag or something like that. It's really a project which has proven that parties which have very very different interests can work together. Also, partially even have different technologies, have different agendas can work very successful together. And, and that, that's also something we should not neglect. All the, also all the critics who say the ISS is, is uh, 
does not pay off. It's so complex. It takes so much money to keep it alive. You, you, you know, you, you need to have projects which bring parties of different interests together because that at the end, it's the only way for dialogue. And the only way for dialogue is to work for a common goal. You can have all these very abstract theoretical discussions, but you need to have something concrete you can work for. And that is also a success of ISS. If somebody would measure ISS in a, in a rating scale, he cannot just look on whatever crew days on orbit or number of experiments performed. He really need also to look at the, at the political aspect on the aspirational aspect, how people look at this, how, how, how different uh, organizations have worked together. And, and, and how even different organizations have, have helped each other out. Because let's not forget for a certain period of time, literally the, the Russian Soyuzes have saved the space station, right? Parties with very different interests can work together if they can define a common goal. And that's, a, that's a really a lesson learned out of ISS and it should not be forgotten. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I had, um... I, well, I used to work on the ATV project, uh, the automated transfer vehicle, and there were five of them as resupply vehicles to the space station. And um, at one point, we had a meeting with Americans and Japanese and Russians, and uh, this Japanese astronaut was looking at the whole ATV, and he said, um, so the guidance, navigation, and control system, that's, that's mainly, that whole software was mainly coming from France. Then the solar arrays, those were mainly coming from the Netherlands. Then the thrusters and that whole design was essentially built in Germany. And the whole body of it was built in Italy. And we're docking to a Russian part of the space station. So he said, French brain, Dutch power, German legs, Italian stomach, and a Russian handshake. <laughs> and I just thought it was phenomenal. <laughs> Yeah. So would you say that without the ISS, would we ever go to Mars? Uh, I really believe that we, we needed the ISS to get there. We still do. I still believe that there's lots to be learned at, in low Earth orbit and that the ISS will also be a platform for testing and experimenting hardware and, and, uh, and uh, science that we want to perform on Moon and Mars. So, for example, we have a, an experiment called Arthrospear SC at, that's a photobioreactor and it's cleaning the air in the sense of using CO2 to generate oxygen, but it's growing algae, microalgae, which is uh, also known as spirulina, so you could even eat it. It's creating a food source while cleaning our air and that is indeed something that we would look into for, for life on Mars. <laughs> for those of us who like our greens, at least. And every kilogram has a cost to it, uh, bringing it up, bringing it back. Every hour of crew time has a cost behind it, but it's still relatively inexpensive compared to going to Mars. So I still really believe in, in using ISS and using low Earth orbit to as a test bed, essentially, for our activities that we want to perform on the moon and then later on Mars. And what we've learned from the ISS is just incredible. And so uh, from, from an industry perspective, a scientific perspective, uh, everything uh, regarding all that we've learned about the effects of microgravity. Uh, we had an experiment called airway monitoring, which uh, you know, in microgravity, things don't settle. 
And so, um, you know, lunar dust, Martian dust, it won't settle the same way as dust settles on Earth. And we need to protect for the health of humans as they go and explore these other destinations. So it, it's just there's so much from ISS that we definitely need to take and apply towards our, our future exploration. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for these great examples. Um, so for my next question, if ISS was a person and you would be talking to them and wishing them a happy birthday, what would you say? What would your birthday wish be? Oh, I think I know. I would say, and many more. <laughs> yes. Because I think we're going we're gonna to need it for a while. And, uh, and I'd like, and I hope I look so good after after that long and i think that uh, any other space projects they should look so good and i think the other thing is that when you think about all the individuals uh, the commercial providers we're seeing now on earth i bet you they were inspired by the iss and sometimes they were inspired to say hey i can do better well that's okay and then sometimes they learned from what we did and we couldn't do and uh, so I think that all this, uh, this is sort of also branched out a whole new way of looking at space exploration. So I think that as far as inspiring, it, it's definitely inspired entrepreneurs, it's, it's, it's inspired young people, and, uh, and it's inspired scientists to think in a different way. And I, I honestly believe that science is going to can solve problems. The ISS will continue to do so, and it will lead to others to do so, have those opportunities. Great. I mean, but there is, I guess there's one, one overarching question for exploration. And that is, at the end, the question, very simple. How long can humans stay in space? Right? And we need ISS to do this. We will see the one-year missions on ISS. We will collect long-term data on ISS. We need that platform, and not only as a science platform, also as an exploration preparation platform. And I guess humans have always explored, and humans will explore. That that's that's literally it's 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 an atavism. It's 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 may, maybe even coded somewhere in our genes or whatever. We we are curious. We want to know what's what's behind there. And I mean, I I can understand robotic exploration. Uh, I can understand sending robots to the Mars. I'm not really sure if this is exploration because it just misses the human the human factor. We have not been there. You don't send robots on the top of Mount Everest and then you say we have been there. You go yourself, and we will do the same for the Mars. We will go ourselves one day and we will look how it how it looks like. But we need to prepare for that. And I mean, an ISS is a very good platform to prepare for that. We we have to do a lot of basic research to get there. And yes, I believe uh, there's a lot of things to be done. Andreas, what would your birthday wish be? Oh, that's that's a very difficult one. But I mean, uh, my yeah, I would most likely also be. Uh, I would say you had a you had a, a a good life until now, but there's many more years to come. And uh, I, I guess even even if you if you would would go and and do a poll in in a country uh, or voting. I cannot see that people really would send ISS away. I, 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 I guess that has also, in the meantime, it has almost become part of our culture and of our self-understanding, right? And uh, there is a, an effect in, in space business which is very difficult to measure. But I had, years ago, I had a discussion with a, with a person in, in Houston who had worked on the Apollo program. And we discussed about all the cost of the Apollo and how great the times were because they had literally, von Braun had unlimited financial resources. Right? And, and these colleagues said a very interesting statement to me. He said, if the whole mission 
had only brought back one thing, the photo of Armstrong's footprint on the moon. It would have fulfilled all we could have asked for, right? Because literally with the, with, with the Apollo moon landing, the U.S. have for decades placed them as a technological leader, right? If, if, if you ask people, they will always come back to the moon landing. It's, it's such a remarkable step. So that means uh, uh, we, we, we will go further. We will, we will land on a Mars. For me, it's, it's a done deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, Kristen, what would your birthday wish be? If I look at people I know that are older, approaching uh, the last phase of their lives or, or from midlife onwards, I would say, <laughs> I, what I admire about them is when they continue to learn, they continue to grow, and they continue to stay active. And that's what I would hope for anyone as they get older, and it's definitely what I hope for ISS. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's uh, that's good advice for anyone, really. So unfortunately, we're out of time again for today. But I want to thank you so much for uh, talking to us over these last three episodes and giving us a, a really cool behind the scenes look at science on the ISS. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us in these last three episodes. And uh, we do actually have one more episode. And in this last episode, we'll be talking to two of the brains behind a highly successful experiment on ISS, the ASIM experiment. Andreas has referred to it actually in this episode. So you might already be wanting to learn more. So then you're in luck. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned and don't forget to keep exploring. 